0: And this is the first time we've done like a, an interview sort of style for Revive, so I hope you don't mind being our guinea pig, but it's really lovely it's to, to have you. And one of the reasons that I, w- I particularly wanted to have you come is because it's really, I feel, inspiring to see women working in the man's, but mostly a man's world. Um, and just having seen a little bit of your bio on the Rochester Diocese website, seeing that you'd actually done quite a lot before and whilst you were in ministry. And being able to just hear a little bit about that journey and particularly the impact of being a woman. And, I mean, I I, I don't know about your situation, but if you have a family and all that sort of thing. um, And I suppose from my point of view, being a minister's wife, um, the impact of ministry on families and on, on just life is also very helpful to hear but also the fact that you can have a job as well as being in ministry too. So, lots. yeah, I want to hear loads. <laughs> no pressure. No yeah, fresher. we've only got about
1: 20 questions here, Julie. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, but anyway, before we start, we thought we'd make it very light. And we, we'll, if you're happy, I haven't told you about this, we thought we'd do a little quick fire question for you. Is that okay. This is very brave at this
1: time in the morning, but we'll give it a go. <laughs>
0: this is, okay. So, box set
1: or books Currently, box set. oh okay, which one? Um, I'm watching. Oh, if only I could remember what it was called. Um, <laughs> a programme. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm watching a programme. That's really unhelpful. <laughs> what you'll discover is I'm very bad at remembering words. So the reason not book is I tend to race through them if they're fiction on holiday, and at the end, I can't remember the name of any of the yeah. characters. And as you've discovered, I just now can't remember the name <laughs> of the box set I'm watching, apart from the fact that it begins with S. Right. Which is helpful, and it's <laughs> about that long in my head. The word, because I remember them by shapes. Oh, A box set. There you right, go. Thank
0: you. Thank you. Uh, beer or wine? Oh, beer. Beer. <laughs> okay. Uh, I know the answer to this one. I think dawn chorus or night owl.
1: Well, definitely not Dawn Chorus. If I'm honest, I peak between about 11 and 1. Yeah. <laughs> so just like, In the middle of the day, and yeah, I slumped again by, by about 9. Yeah. So. Not Night Owl either. Okay.
0: Wedges or wellies?
1: Ooh. Um, I don't know. Um, not wellies, um, but, um, but flat boots, really, is yeah. the answer okay. to that one.
0: Lovely. Caribbean or Cornwall? Cornwall. Okay. Uh, cats or dogs? Cats. Dance floor or dinner party?
1: Neither. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Driver or passenger? Oh, driver, but so's my other half. Wow. Neither of us make good passengers. Oh,
0: okay. Yes, I would always like to be a passenger. I hate driving. <laughs> Tea or coffee?
1: Coffee. Okay.
0: Favourite film? If you
1: can remember. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ooh, there's a few, but Lawrence of Arabia is okay. definitely up there. Oh,
0: okay. And uh, finally, the last uh, film that you've seen.
1: I've got to try and remember what it's called <laughs> The Last Tree it's called. Um, it's a film about a young lad um, from Nigeria, brought up initially by white foster mother, then by his Nigerian mother in London and about his trip home to Lagos to meet his father. I really recommend it if you're interested mm. in uh, that sort of journey and culture clash. Really interesting film.
0: Great. Thank you. Jane.
1: Hi, Julie. Um, I wonder if we could start uh, just by asking you if you could tell us what an archdeacon is. <laughs> they gave me advance warning of this question. I still don't know. Um, okay, so it's a senior role in the diocese. Um, the diocese is divided into three. So if I talk about our diocese, it will help. Obviously, this replicates across the country. Um, the diocese is divided into three archdeaconries, And I'm the Archdeacon of Tunbridge, which isn't just Tunbridge. It's Tunbridge and Sevenoaks and Paddockwood and Edenbridge and who knows where else. Um, And the other two are Rochester and the London boroughs of Bromley and Bexley is the third one. Um, So we have a whole area that we're responsible for in terms of care of the clergy. Discipline of the clergy as well, which is interesting, (laughs) Uh, We have various legal roles, Um, so there are certain committees we have to sit on. There are certain things we can approve, like uh, whether you can have a bench in a graveyard or not. Really interesting and exciting things like that. So we have some legal responsibilities around church buildings, some legal responsibilities around clergy housing. Um, We spend a huge amount of time troubleshooting. So if nobody's been able to solve it, it ends up on our desk. And it either comes down to us, so if someone sends a complaint to the Archbishop of Canterbury and it's about something in my Archdeaconry it will come from Lambeth Palace to Bishop's Court to my desk and then I have to sort it out and respond. But equally it will come up. So if if there's an issue in a parish that uh, the vicar and the wardens and the PCC haven't been able to solve and the area dean hasn't been able to solve it, it'll end up on my desk as well. So we end up resolving or trying to Quite a lot of things. So, I do spend quite a bit of time dealing with complaints. Mm. Uh, That's the least fun bit of the Mm. job, it should be said. And I dread, all vicars will experience this as well, the handwritten letters that come through the door. Mm. They used to fill me with dread in parish, and they fill me with dread as an archdeacon because. You imagine they're going to be a horrible complaint about something. Just occasionally, they're a thank you note, which is always a lovely surprise after you've put off opening it for about half an hour. Um, So, yeah, that's the sort of thing you do. And I sit on the bishop's senior staff. I'm the only woman on the bishop's senior staff um, because the other two archdeacons are male and both our bishops are male, as is our director of education and our director of ministry. And formation, and audioses, and secretary. So, thank you, Julie. Sounds like a really interesting and varied post. It's never dull. Mm. <laughs> what is it that you most enjoy about the role? It's that I think actually, it's that it is never dull. I have a low boredom threshold, and um, I think in all the jobs I've done, I've always had to learn a lot. So it's a really steep learning curve, but I enjoy that I'm still. Learning, learning law, learning how to do things, just navigating through some sort of impossible situations. I think it's fascinating. So you love to continue learning and developing, and it sounds like it gives you exactly that. Mm. Um, I understand that you first experienced a call to ordained ministry in your teens. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about that encounter. Ooh, where to start? Um, I went to a church probably not dissimilar to this. It was a Victorian mission church down the bottom of the hill that had been built for the servants originally. <laughs> um, it was uh, evangelical charismatic. Um, and I was at Spring Harvest uh, about, I think I was about 15, 16. And there was a talk about people being called to leadership. And I can remember sitting there thinking, just feeling really strongly called, but really conflicted. Because I'd grown up in my church that's very much, though there were models of women in leadership, um, women were not encouraged to be leaders. Um, certainly, um, at that time, women weren't ordained in the Church of England, and this was an Anglican church. Um, and I was just utterly conflicted because I couldn't see how I could be both called to leadership in the church. I don't think I would have said it was ordination at that point, Um, but I couldn't see how I could both be called to that and be a woman, but I went forward anyway. Mm, Wow, so that feeling must have been incredibly strong to overcome that feeling of conflict as well. Mm. Thank you. Um, So after that experience in your teens, what, what came next? Well, that was tricky um, because I couldn't quite see how I could follow the call. Um, But it seemed obvious to me, at least, that doing some sort of theology or religious studies or, as it turned out, biblical studies degree um, would be the next step. So there was no formal route for me as a woman to go into leadership. So I went to university and did a degree in biblical studies at Sheffield. Um, Meanwhile, women still couldn't be ordained as priests um, or deacons, although there were some women as deaconesses at that point. Um, So I then had to decide what to do at the end of my degree. Is that another question, or do you want me to keep going? Keep going. going. (laughs) (laughs) So I got to the end of the degree and thought, well, that's really interesting. Um, And decided to go and do a job. I I couldn't decide whether to stay and study more, which I loved or go and do something. So I decided I'd go and do something. So I went and ran a homeless hostel for young people in Oxford for a year Mm. which was incredibly hard Um, and from that I got a job in the probation service in London and started a career working with offenders. Mm. Thank you. It's interesting to hear how you really had to... There there wasn't an obvious career route and you had to make those choices on on what you felt was going to be most helpful for you in reaching that position. I sort of blame Johnny Cash. (laughs) If anybody's a Johnny Cash fan, my dad was a big Johnny Cash fan. And um, as a teenager, I was very inspired by his... um, particularly his visits to... San Quentin and Folsom Prison, and uh, as well as having a call to ordination, as I now say it, but a call to leadership in the church, I also have always had a call to people on the edge or who mm. are excluded, mm. and so there was quite a strong call to work with people who were in prison and offenders on release. Thank you. Can I just backtrack a tiny bit? Uh, that you, The feeling that you had when you say you felt called to leadership in the church? What was that feeling? For me, um, I've realized over the years that there's a pattern. If I'm really called to something, my first realization of that is usually me very strongly saying, absolutely in no circumstances ever. So every time I felt called to something, there's been an initial no and I've now learned that when I get that really strong you-must-be-joking sort of sense, that I have to look at it quite carefully and start praying about it to discern what might be going on. Interesting how, uh, when you're perhaps challenged to come out of your comfort zone, fear is your first... Is it a fear to say no? No, it's is... not necessarily a fear. It might just be a recognition that well, it might simply be that I've never imagined I could do it, or it might be that it looks really unpleasant. It might not be fear. It might be just a sense of why on earth would I give this up to do that? Mm, I understand. Thank you.
0: And did you go on to do something else after probation?
1: Oh, yes. So carry on so I w- about your, your career. I w- I worked in probation for 16 years, Mm -hmm. and while I was working in the probation service, towards the end of that, um, the Church of England started ordaining women to the priesthood. And so I trained to be ordained. We'll probably come back to that. So um, I was working in probation and training to be a priest, and pregnant. That's another story. Um, (laughs) We can unpack that in a minute. Um, (laughs) With difficulty is the answer. I presume you meant that, rather than "How on earth did I manage to get pregnant?" <laughs> <laughs> we won't go into that. That's <laughs> not, not if Lots of your recordedness. Um, having worked in probation for a long time, I actually did leave the probation service and did a number of other roles that were related. I developed a specialism uh, around um, helping offenders to get into education, training, or employment. And I worked for the Youth Justice Board for a while around that same area. I uh, worked solo as a consultant around that with the Department for Education and different local authorities. Um, And then I headed up a um, a not-for-profit organization who were running a European-funded resettlement project for offenders. I headed up uh, this European project, which was in different parts of the country. Um, And then I worked in a local authority as a specialist youth manager, managing their youth offending teams, people referral units, and care leavers team. And then I set up a business um, with a colleague, which was a consultancy around that whole area. And then, so we're going some way on now, I stepped out of that in 2010 uh, in order to uh, transfer across to paid ministry rather than ministry I paid for by doing all that work, if that makes sense.
0: I don't know how you can do those sort of jobs and... Do ministry and have a family. That is amazing. Badly. <laughs> and I'm just really interested with all these different things that you've done. Was that, did you apply for jobs? Did people, did sort of people come up and you had um, divine appointments, if you'd like, for things to happen? Because that, those sort of jobs sound really interesting, not the ones that you'd necessarily see in a paper and go and apply for, or, they, or maybe they were?
1: Yeah, there were mostly things I applied for.
0: Okay. Right. Um,
1: and, and all of them had you know, normal sort of interview processes, okay. even if I was headhunted for them, oh. those still things mm. where I had to go through a selection process against other people.
0: Yeah. And with those jobs, that was down to your experience and because you had the degree in biblical studies. <laughs>
1: That was your, your The background. degree in biblical studies didn't really help with well, he the job a, in the probation service. You well, had a degree. <laughs> it was. Um, for, in order, when I went into the probation service, I was, uh, after a couple of years, I was sponsored by the Home Office to train as a social worker, which Thank is the basic you. qualification for being a probation officer. Right. So yeah. I did um, train as a probation officer that's sort of followed by a period in the probation service where you're a first-year officer, which is like, I don't know, the, the equivalent sort of thing in teaching, I guess, where you... Mm. You're doing it, but you're still learning. Um, so I don't think the degree was particularly helpful to employers, yeah, yeah. other than that I was a graduate. Yeah. Uh, the professional qualification in social work was what they needed. Obviously yeah. helpful. Yeah, yeah. And then the experience was helpful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Thank you. Have you um, ever had any discrimination in, in either ministry or in your sort of secular work as a woman?
1: What you think? Ooh. I was recalling the other day that when I first started working in probation we used to have to wear skirts if we mm-hmm. went into court. Wow. So that's just a silly thing, but it yeah. was a very male world. So most of the offenders we worked with were men, most of the lawyers, most of the police officers, um, most of the sentences, although there was some diversity. Um, so it was, a, it was a again, it was quite a men's world, the criminal justice service, although probation was much more mixed um, but when i first started there weren't that many senior women in the probation service by the time i left mm. it was probably 50 50 mm. so there was a, a massive change in that service over the time so um yeah um discrimination in the church absolutely mm. um it's very hard to work out what the discrimination is the sometimes, because some of it will be theology. Mm. So it will be that somebody, because of their theology about women, uh, very strongly believes that the Bible teaches that women cannot be in a leadership position. Yeah, Or because of their understanding of the church and church history, believes that women cannot be ordained as priests and cannot preside at communion, depending on which end of the church spectrum you are. Um, All of that feels like discrimination, but you have to recognize that some of it is sexism and some of it's theology. And there is a difference as to what the reason is, even though the experience can be much the same. Mm -hmm. Um, So... um, Uh, I was uh, at the uh, Anglo-Catholic bits of our church are gathered together under the Bishop of Richborough, um, who has oversight of them, and they had a festival uh, mass at the cathedral not so long ago, and I was the only woman priest robed and up the front, but because of their their view around the ordination of women, I couldn't con-celebrate at that mass like all the other 60-odd priests did. I had to stand to one side. Mm -hmm. So there are things that feel quite difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, um, some of the more conservative evangelical churches won't accept my oversight Now, they would say that's not because I'm a woman, but because of what they would see as my liberal views on sexuality. I don't know if I'm as liberal as people think I am, but hey, um, we we could debate that differently. Um, But for whatever reason, um, that feels like a rejection of my role that I inhabit. And there is no... You can't, in the Church of England, just not have oversight of people, be they archdeacons or area deans or bishops, just because you disagree with them on something. You can disagree profoundly. You're allowed to disagree. But you can't just say, therefore, you're not my bishop or you're not my archdeacon. So it puts you in quite an odd position. Um, There's something um, recognized. There's this thing recognized where there's a sense of fatigue, Um, which comes with the energy you spend trying to fit in to a situation or an organization where you are in some way different to the majority who hold the power. So it's quite exhausting sometimes just being in those situations. And it's a sort of recognized thing that happens to women in the church, happens to black leaders in the church as well of trying to fit um, where you're having to actually put a lot of energy into trying to fit because Mm. you don't feel you fit naturally
0: Mm. and how have you dealt with that yourself
1: hmm I occasionally go and lock myself in a darkened room to recover I don't know how I deal with it um beer helps um (laughs) On the bad days. <laughs> um, I'm a great believer in just being. So, when I was first ordained, um, I went to a church who had only just voted uh, by a two third majority to accept an ordained woman ministering in their church. That meant there were a third of them who were opposed. Mm which meant there were a number of people who would regularly take me to one side and explain to me why I couldn't be a priest. And there were a number of people who wouldn't receive communion of me if I presided at communion. And I quickly realized that this was complicated and pastorally difficult and that the best I could do was just be. And if you just are... then god does things i think that's what i'd say Mm -hmm. so uh, rather than constantly fighting um i'm quite happy to have debate and discussion with people but actually it's easier just to be who i am and i believe i am called and i am a priest in the church
0: Mm -hmm. and do you feel you've had to make more sacrifices because of being a woman than perhaps you would have done if you were a man I guess that's a very wide question, isn't it? You could take that in ministry, or you could take it in any other way. But I suppose I'm thinking more ministry. And
1: I don't know that I've had to make more sacrifices as a woman. I know that in terms of I've talked about the exhaustion thing. I think there is definitely it is more difficult than it ought to be. Let's put it that way. So that in that sense, you're constantly going uphill. And that, I suppose, is sacrifice. Um, I don't know that I've made more sacrifices than, than men do. I guess everybody's situation is difficult.
0: Mm-hmm. And would you say you, there was one particular sacrifice you've had to make as, as a woman, either in ministry or in when you were working before? You've had to put something in front of something else.
1: That's interesting. Um, we have a very egalitarian relationship, my husband and I. So he does as much of the, in fact, he does more of the housework, the shopping, the ironing. He does all of that um, pretty well, the cooking. He does quite a lot. You know, so there's a huge amount that he does. He's probably made quite a lot of sacrifices mm-hmm. because time-wise he has more time to do it than I have. Um, but I do remember when I was working, um, there were two, two things, maternity leave. Mm. Um, which I found really difficult, Um, but it it does impact on your career. So if you're very Mm. career-minded, the fact that you take those periods out Mm. definitely has an impact. Mm. Mm. Um, When I was training to be ordained, I found I couldn't work five days a week and train, so I went down to four days a week in paid employment, Mm. which meant I had less money, but also... That has an impact in terms of career. Um, I generally was the person having to run home from work to pick the kids up from after school club. And I do remember a long period of years where it was literally running, running for the first train from London Bridge that I could get to after I finished work, running from the train to the bus, any number of combinations of which bus will be quickest, mm. given what's coming, running from the bus to the after-school club, paying the fine for being late—all mm. of those things—and that—that seemed at the time it seemed unfair. But it was harder for my husband to get out of work at that sort of five o'clock-ish time because of the work he did. He was really expected to be there till sort of six-ish, maybe seven. So it was me who had to do that, and that felt difficult. Um, Can I ask,
0: was that when you were in secular work, or was that when you were in? That was leadership? when I was in secular work, but right. I was so I was also ad- ordained. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. so you were having to come out of because I was just thinking, in, in our house, obviously Chris is around, so. When someone's around, if there's an emergency, he would be around because he's there. So if you were in ordained, paid ordained ministry, it may have been slightly easier. If your child was sick, you can just go and get. Them. Yeah, but probably would in, have been. Yeah. But if you're in, you no, know, working in London, you've got to get somewhere else to get your child. Yeah, that's a really big
1: thing yeah. to go and do. Yeah. yeah. Which is you no know, a lot of people here have as well. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So in terms of sacrifice, I mean, I think that's just something everybody can relate to. Yeah. I think yeah, it's just absolutely. it's hard juggling any number of things. And I also remember when I was studying to be ordained that the only time I could find to study, this was before I dropped that day a week so I could do it, which was about after the end of the first year, was Saturday morning in the soft play area at the local leisure centre. So I'd be there reading my theology books while my son was jumping and bouncing around in the ball pond, trying desperately to concentrate.
0: (laughs) <laughs> Great. And we may well have covered this a little bit already, but what actually made you become ordained? Have we covered that already?
1: Um, I think because I'd always been in the Church of England and I was called into leadership, and I do believe that was a calling to ordination. Yeah. Um, eventually, the Church of England um, started ordaining women to the priesthood in 1994, which was when I started to explore... With the church, my call
0: to ordination. Mm. But that was in a non stipendary way as opposed to being a paid.
1: Yeah, because way. by then I was established in a career mm. which was also part of my vocation. Yeah. And it seemed at the time the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah thank you. Okay. I feel we've covered the next one. Oh, right. So you guys, I think we're on number nine.
0: Oh, okay, <laughs> whizzing along here. Okay. Um, so, how have you coped? You don't have answer this, but how have you coped as, a, in a way, a clergy family, being available twenty four seven, or maybe you've had better boundaries than we have had, <laughs> being available twenty four seven? How have you? I mean, or being in a goldfish bowl, or you know, all the sort of things that clergy families say. How have you dealt with it? Coped with it? Well,
1: we swerved it for a long time. So, by being a self-supporting minister. I wasn't the vicar anywhere. No, yeah. I was an associate priest um, and I didn't live in a vicarage. Mm. So, for starters, quite a lot of people didn't know where I lived, so that was handy. Mm. And although I had a phone number, and they also knew I worked full time mm. and that I wasn't available all the mm. time. So, I had quite a, in that sense, we were not in the goldfish bowl yeah. for a long time. Mm-hmm. When I eventually became a vicar of a church, that was a real shock to move into the vicarage uh, in a number of ways. Um, for our family, we were downsizing into a vicarage. Often it's the other way around. Um, and that in itself was a, was a challenge. Um, but my kids, I had a teenager and a child away at university at that point. Um, so it was a little easier. Um, I did 24-7 grumpily. I think. So there'd be times when I hid and sent my teenager to answer the door, um, which was quite useful. He got very good at making sandwiches for people who were hungry. Um, there'd be times when my husband would answer the door and say, it's Julie's day off. And the person would say, yes, I know.
0: Well, I've gone. And
1: then he'd be very rude to them. Um, I didn't find it easy. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to be boundaried. In my career, I was mm-hmm. used to very clear boundaries, mm-hmm. very clear boundaries between my personal life and my work life. Mm-hmm. Um, and although I would work late from home, once we all had those wonderful systems where we could access online our emails at work, magically, um, or be working in preparation for things, um, i didn 't bring there was no contact between my clients, for example, or offenders, and my home life mm. um so for me, the whole idea of living and ministering in a parish was quite a challenge mm. it was quite difficult
0: and your family did they did they adapt all right or was it tricky for them
1: I think they adapted quite well actually mm. yeah yeah i mean i 'm not saying it wasn 't tricky yeah yeah um but they did adapt okay. Mm. Great, thank
0: you. you. And are there any similarities between what you did in your secular work as to what you are doing now or when you were a vicar?
1: Yeah. So um, a lot of what I learnt in my ordinary secular work, if you like, um, I use now. So I was a senior manager and I'm in a senior management role now. Mm. So in terms of... um, uh, the leadership team meetings, that's not dissimilar to being in a senior leadership team meeting in a local authority. Yeah. I mean, it's more prayerful, but yeah. it's the same sort <laughs> nice of issues. Your debate, <laughs> you're discussing budget. I'm used to managing large budgets. I'm used to managing people. Uh, I'm used to working with what the church would call difficult pastoral situations. Mm. So there's a lot of overlap um, and a huge amount of skills that you can transfer from one to the other. In the same way as I think being a Christian and my faith helped me in my other work. Mm. So I, I don't think, I don't see them as separate. They, they definitely fit in.
0: Yeah, thank you.
1: Okay, um, that brings us on quite nicely. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about um, your faith. Um, and I wondered, looking back to the time when you felt called to ordained ministry, do you think you were doing anything different that put you in a better position to hear God's calling? I was in a church that really stressed discipleship following Jesus. So I learned from a very early age that I should be looking to, uh, to study what God wanted me to study, to work as what God wanted to, me to work as, to map my life out, not simply around what I wanted to do, but around a life of service. Um, So um, it was an environment in which prayer, Bible study, worship were key, and I was surrounded by a load of other young people, which was fantastic, who similarly um, lived, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I was in a church that had a really vibrant youth club. Um, And we were encouraged as young people to be very involved in all sorts of roles within the church. Mm. Um, So I think that helped enormously. Mm, Thank you. Um, And considering this, I wonder, is there any encouragement that perhaps you could offer to us as a a group of women um, that would perhaps help us reach our dreams or, or know what it is that God's called us to do? Well, never say never. That would be the first thing. Um, Just because the church doesn't do something doesn't mean that God isn't calling you to it. Um, I think what I'd say is that serving God isn't all about wearing a collar. Um, It's about everything. And I think that's what I found is I, I don't feel I'm serving God more as an archdeacon or as a parish priest Um, than I was as a probation officer or in any of the other jobs that I did. Uh, For me, all of that was about serving God and trying to bring about God's kingdom here on earth. Um, So I'd encourage you not to feel in any way that for some reason somebody who does something full-time for Jesus is doing it better. Um, Vocation, calling, serving, following is what we can all do. So it's every day of the week, any role you're in, whether it's at home, at work, volunteering, down the shops, doesn't matter what it is. So um, I think that I'd encourage you in that. Um, I'd encourage you that just because you don't see people like you at the front in church, in particular roles, doesn't mean that God couldn't be calling you to that. As well, so and that can be true in any profession, any setting. we tend to find it hard to imagine ourselves doing something unless we can see people like us up there doing it, um, which is why role models are so so, so important, um, but the reality is that somebody has to be the first, somebody has to pioneer. Um, And that God's calling you because of who you are um, and actually isn't limited by who the role models are. So um, keep going.
0: Have you got a role model?
1: Well, I think I've probably got lots of role models.
0: Have you got anyone you can share with us? Well, maybe people that we don't know anyway, but...
1: I think any of the women who were ordained in the first cohort, the 94 cohort in the church, um, are role models because they very much paid a price as pioneers. Um, They had fought for something for a long time, many of them. Some of them had been ordained as deaconesses, then were in the first lot who could be ordained as deacons, then were the first lot ordained as priests. Um, I was able to come along on the tail of that and just be. And I'm not saying just being was easy, but I hadn't had to push. Mm -hmm. And they'd done the pushing for me. Mm -hmm. So we had a celebration in 2014, it must have been, um, around the um, anniversary of women first being priested. And it was in the cathedral, and we invited all those who had been in that very first cohort to come forward. And it was so moving watching some some who were very elderly now walking forward to receive a gift from the bishop. Mm. Um, Very powerful, very, very powerful.
0: And have you got any advice for any woman that would think about going into ministry or, or day ministry now? <laughs> not don't do it <laughs> think carefully
1: think um, and yeah. um, i've yeah it, if you think god's calling i don't think you've got much choice really i think you mm, have to yeah, follow I um uh, i would say that there are different forms of ministry um you have to be yourself you have to inhabit it as the person you are you can't be somebody else um so sometimes um, i've got a colleague who um, has taken over a really interesting church in Liverpool Diocese and uh, she was really struggling with what to do. She's a highly, highly intelligent woman, uh, writes books and very, very smart Um, and the penny dropped eventually that she couldn't find a church that she fitted so she was going to have to find a church and turn it into the church that it would be when she led it which I thought was really interesting. And it's going really well. Mm-hmm. But it's the whole idea that sometimes you're called to be something that doesn't look like anything else that's mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. So don't feel limited by that. So I would encourage people to to follow, just follow, mm-hmm. um, whether it's ordained or lay ministry. or All ministry is just what you do, isn't it? It's not, it's not necessarily especially Christian.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. And would you be able to share with us what's kept you motivated or what's kept you going when perhaps you felt like giving up?
1: I think I fell in love with uh, the passion for justice that I read about in the Gospels in particular. So uh, the if you read about Jesus and read about some of the amazing things he did, it's not the sort of walking on water type stuff that interests me. It's the how he included people who were excluded, how he was passionate about people who were hungry and didn't have enough, and were excluded from uh, worship or were um, pushed out of the community because of the jobs they did or um, the children who wouldn't normally have had a right uh, to be at the front. Um, so it's that sort of thing that I think motivates me. Um, so at times it's anger that motivates me. So if I'm feeling really angry about something that's going on in society or in the church, that will really motivate me. Um, at times it's just looking at how Christ lived and what he taught And wanting to see his way, that way of the kingdom of God, being the way we live. So it's a desire to see things being different. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you. And have you been able to use your your role to um, uh, influence things that interest you?
1: Yeah, so I've got the bishop's safeguarding lead for the diocese, um, which means I'm the one who stands behind the safeguarding team, praying for them and supporting them and also chairing various safeguarding committees. And one of the biggest challenges is to change our culture across the diocese around safeguarding. So we're much more focused on the needs of victims and survivors, much less defensive. Um, about mistakes that we have made on our watch um, and uh, that we are a safer church, um, so I would say i 've definitely seen a change in that over the last eighteen months mm-hmm. um, that 's made a made a difference mm-hmm. within the archdeaconry um, we 've had to make some difficult decisions um, around churches in terms of reorganizing, and I'm starting to see some of that coming to be where I'm encouraging particularly smaller churches to work together in order to be more missional, and we're starting to see glimmers of that happening.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you. Have you got, like, a special interest or or passion? Having looked at your tweets, (laughs) um, I just saw there was something about domestic abuse, and I just wondered whether that was something that you were, how do you phrase that, particularly interested in and having, um, maybe a passion isn't quite the right word that you can have for that, but that you're aware that... no.
1: So domestic abuse sits within our safeguarding brief, so it sits within this area of work that that I have in the diocese. Um, But when I was a parish priest, if you asked me which form of abuse I had most contact with, I suppose... It would be domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I've worked with people who've been abused in different ways, um, but it's probably the most prevalent form of abuse in our Mm -hmm. society. Um, It's disproportionately against women. Um, So although some women do abuse men, Um, Predominantly, it is men who abuse women, and it's women who are most at risk of being killed um, by their partners. Mm. Um, So I am fairly passionate about that. How Mm. could you not be? Um, And I think it's something that we are realizing in churches. We need to be much more clued in about Mm. in how to support people and how to do it in a way that doesn't make them more at risk mm-hmm. but helps to keep them safe mm-hmm. so I've just agreed to be a trustee of a domestic abuse okay. charity so yeah. hoping that's going to come off yeah. I'd be really pleased yeah. I think as a church
0: it's, it's a bit like that and human trafficking where it seems so big that you don't quite know where to start and so just having some simple things, well I don't think it's not really simple is it? but having some suggestions as to what you can do and what you can say is really, really helpful. We, a few years ago, we had someone from Tear Fund, and they looked like a strand, which is domestic abuse, um, come and do a day for us, which is really helpful. So, um, yeah, thank you. So we're
1: encouraging um, all our clergy this year, but also each church, to support White Ribbon Day, mm-hmm. which is a campaign for the end uh, of abuse by men on women. Mm-hmm. Um, so each priest will be getting a white ribbon, each church will be getting a poster and some cards and leaflets as well.
0: What date's that?
1: Do you know? 25th of November, I
0: think.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay, Watch out for the mail-out. Okay.
0: Do you want know to do, because we're getting to the end. We long. Yeah, I think
1: this might be our last question. <laughs> I'll be <laughs> relieved okay. to know, Julie. Um, just wondered what scriptures have inspired you or comforted you most on your journey Probably my favourite. I was asked what my favourite Bible verse was by a member of my congregation when I worked in Erith, and um, she's had it carved for me on a gourd by an artist Aww. in Nigeria and brought it back for me. And it hangs on my wall, and it's John 10:10b, which is, "I came that they might have life in all its fullness," Aww. which um, is, is just uh, amazing, really. That. Jesus came that we might live abundantly, which is why I'm not big on the sort of sacrifice stuff, because if I wasn't... There's something about, although what God calls you to can be difficult and challenging and seem impossible, if it's right, it should also be something in which you flourish and can have abundant life. Um, Not every day. You know, there are those awful days... But overall, if I'm not flourishing, then there's something awry. And I need to talk to God about either what I'm doing wrong or whether I ought to be doing that thing. There is something about us being called to that fulfillment. Mm I'm also very fond of the book of Job, with all its misery, for those of you who know Job. Um, But it's brilliant because all the clever theologians tried to explain to Job how he must have done something wrong in order to be suffering, but he hadn't. It was all down to a bet that the devil and God had had at the beginning. It's a very strange book. And um, I just think it's really helpful to remember that you just, no matter what your faith, you often can't explain why something's gone wrong or somebody's suffering and shouldn't. And that the only response from God at the end was, well, I made Leviathan and Behemoth, the whale and the hippopotamus, for example. And it seems utterly inadequate, but the only response was that God did respond to Job. God spoke to Job and was with Job. It's a very strange book. And for all its strangeness, I rather like it. Mm. And i I think it's quite humbling when we get above ourselves and think we can explain why bad things happen to good people. Thank you. Has anyone got anything that they would like
0: to ask, Julie? Do you feel we've covered everything?
1: I shall come with my roving mic if you have (laughs) anything.
0: Don't be shy.
1: I'm hoping for a killer question. (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you, Jess. I was just struck by when you said that um, you were in your job
0: initially for for 16 years before you were able to go into the thing that you felt kind of God was initially calling you as a teenager. Um, And you just kind of said it and then passed on. And I thought, 16 years, that's that's 16 times 365 days when you're desperate to follow the call of God. Um, That's thousands of days. Um, How did you be at peace with doing life every day when you knew that you were called to something maybe bigger or
1: that you thought was bigger? Or how did you go get through those days? I think it was fine in that I was also called to what I was doing. So I did see myself as having a vacation to work in probation, as I said. So... Although that wasn't the totality of my vocation, it wasn't that I was doing a job I hated or that I was doing something that I saw no value in. Um, so that was okay. I think I was angry with the church. I think I still am angry with the church generally about all sorts of things. I think that might be my default position. Um, so I was angry with the church that women were not treated equally um, Uh, But then think about it. I mean, we only agreed to have women ordained as bishops in 2014. So I've been angry about that up Mm. until very recently. Um, So maybe that also inspires us to carry on. It it doesn't make me want to give up. I'm sort of stubborn and think we should hang on in there. And I think my reward was to be able to be sitting in General Synod and when we actually voted that women could become bishops and to actually be part of that sort of historic day. Mm -hmm. Um, Some things are hard fought, aren't they? Mm
0: -hmm. Anyone else?
1: (sighs) Two. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, Do you think you've done lots of different things and it sounds like you could even now where you've got so many different things in your job you could be doing you must have to choose different projects or different things to like how to spread your time basically Um, do you think it's better to put all of your time and resources into one thing and do that for a really long time and maybe like change again but after a long time or try to do lots of things at once (laughs) Is there any way to balance (laughs) it? It's impossible to balance it, is the answer. I think both. I think there is something to be gained from building experience, solid experience in one thing. And I think that's probably the thing you start with. Um, But I think there does come a point in a lot of jobs, certainly, where there's a huge amount to be gained from shifting about. Because you have to learn much faster. So you're suddenly in unfamiliar environments, having to absorb huge amounts of new, bucketfuls of new is what it feels like that people are throwing over you. It's very disorienting. But you learn a huge amount about yourself and just about those environments. And if you're always in one place, you become an expert at being in that one place, but you don't learn all those other things. So if you're asking for career advice, the career advice is it's, it's very good at some point to try doing some different things in different organizations. Um, which means that when I started being an archdeacon, and although I knew the diocese really well, and I knew the senior team quite well, so that bit was familiar, because everything else was new, I was on some sort of familiar territory, and I thought, oh, I've been here before. I know what this is like. It's awful for the first six months. And then you're still learning for the next 18 months or two years or three years, still learning. Um, and eventually you start to become a bit more of an expert and it gets a bit more comfortable, but there'll always be something new. Does that help? Yeah. Thank you, Julie. I think we've got time for yeah. just for yeah. one more quick question because we'd yeah. like was to have a little bit from. of time in our the table. A much lighter question. You call yourself a beer drinker. I'm saying that's <laughs> Ale. Real ale or. Which beer? Yeah, is it ale or is it lagers or is it. <laughs> you don't have to give the name. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Well, it varies, is the answer. When I was up north, it would have been bitter. And then when I moved to London years and years ago, I couldn't abide London beer. Really. And it just tastes totally different. So I switched to. What was then the new thing, which was newly imported Fancy Pants foreign lager. Mm. So strong lagers were my drink for a long time, but now I'm quite into IPAs. So some of them are slightly strange craft. And the purpose of my question is, if you go into a pub, are you going in as an ale drinker or a beer drinker? Or are you going in as... An archdeacon. (laughs) (laughs) Or both. Or both. (laughs) The other day, the three of us um, were in the pub at uh, ordinations, because ordinations is the only day when the bishop doesn't serve alcohol with lunch. Mm -hmm. So we all went to the pub instead on the way up the road. Um, Usually I'm just going in a a pub in my spare time, so (laughs) very much not wearing the collar. I really don't like wearing this in public which is interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Partly it's because I was in Southwark Diocese when I was ordained, and in London at that time, it could attract some really negative Mm. attention. Um, And frankly, life's difficult enough without people either mouthing off at you or spitting at you on the train station. So um, I'm not a comfortable collar wearer. So at first opportunity, collar off down the park. There, you can take it off
0: don't it? <laughs> yeah.
1: I also... Are we still recording this? You can turn it right. off. Turn it off. Like turn that. this bit off. Yeah.